um, because most people don't have the kind of you know childhood that I had where money was being discussed and uh, good examples were being set. Most people do what's just normal in the U.S., which is yeah, consume. They see car ads, they see credit cards. They you can buy stuff, you can go to stores, you can get subscriptions, you can get Amazon. It's just it's just consume, consume, consume. And then, you know, you have money, you spend money, and then this whole idea of living below your means and investing early and often just isn't really taught or talked about most mostly. And so that's where Personal Finance Club comes in, where I can basically take everything I know about this that I've learned through my lifetime of experience and everything I've learned from all the books and podcasts and everything else I've been consuming and um, basically share it back in like what's kind of easy, more bite-sized, consumable digestible pieces on Instagram. Welcome to the Data Binge Podcast, a library of discussions with technologists and business leaders focusing on the human relationship with technology. Three, two, one, deploy. Hey everyone, welcome to the discussion today, and oh, what a discussion it is. I can't wait to dive in with you. If this is your first time listening, the Data Binge podcast typically focuses on fairly deep technical discussions around how technology such as AI, machine learning, and even augmented reality is, can, and will impact our daily lives, both professionally and personally. But within the relationship of humans and tech, the personal component which truly separates us as living beings from the always connected and wired world of machines, our emotions, our mental health, and our freedom, these are all things that we can control that will play a part in how we successfully co-evolve with technology. Just a quick update for you. For ongoing subscribers, I've also begun capturing the majority of new guest conversations as live broadcasts, primarily on LinkedIn Live but also deploying out to YouTube and Facebook as well. And if you'd like to view the live video broadcasts of these interviews and to engage in real time, I encourage you to do so by connecting with me on LinkedIn by typing Derek Wesley Russell in the search bar or by following the Data Binge podcast company page. You can also do the same via YouTube if that is your preferred on-demand video consumption vehicle. Our next live broadcast will be Friday, May 22nd at 9 a.m. PST via these live channels featuring Rodney Campbell and Keith Richardson, the hosts of the More in Common podcast. And we're going to be discussing everything from company culture in big tech to time management to thought leadership in the world of the podcast and many more topics. I really hope you can join live and you can, of course, find links for all these different assets in the show notes provided in this episode. Today's discussion features Jeremy Schneider, self-made multi-millionaire, retiree at 34 years old, and now founder of Personal Finance Club, at Personal Finance Club on Instagram, where he spends the majority of his consulting and sharing time, an organization built with the sole purpose of spreading the word that living below your means and investing early and often in index funds is the most efficient and effective path to building wealth. Jeremy turned down a handsome offer from Microsoft about 17 years ago after interning with the organization as a software developer, armed with a BS in computer engineering and a master's in computer science from the University of Michigan. And with the help of his mom, grew Rentlinks.com, a rental property advertisement business from a desktop under his desk in his living room 
to a $5 million business, all while over the course of about a decade, never paying himself more than a $36,000 salary. Jeremy is an absolute titan of personal finance, and his mission is to offer free, real deal, no strings attached knowledge to people like you and I on how to make better financial decisions. Some things we talk about in the discussion, the only two concepts you'll ever need to know about personal finance, spend below your means and invest early and often. We talk about Ashley and Amanda and other sample scenarios of how one can become a millionaire with a $4,000 after-tax take-home salary by putting away $800 a month over 40 years versus the alternative, spending the entire 4K and retiring into poverty off of Social Security. We cover another couple sample scenarios in the talk. We talk about why buying a home, here we go, is almost never a good financial decision. If you say it's the best investment you'll ever make, it's probably because it's the only investment you'll ever make. We also end the discussion with topics ranging from student loan paydown strategies to debt consolidation, frugality, minimalism, and easy investment strategies. I am so personally vested into this episode, and I'm just really hoping that aside from what you'll get from Jeremy, I hope you can learn a little bit from my own story and the challenges that I've had with money in my earlier life because I've had quite a bit of challenges. Most people, including myself, need or needed better financial education. And the majority of people really need to feel what it's like to be free of the burden of debt so they can spend that mental energy creating, learning, and focusing on the present and on the future. This episode was recorded just before the COVID era. So this will be the only mention during the entire discussion of that topic. So chill out, relax, learn, open your mind, and enjoy an incredible episode that just might change your life. Please, please rate and comment on the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you truly enjoy it, or share it with someone that needs to regather their financial and emotional life. Thank you for listening, and I'm wishing you and your family the very best in health. And now I bring you Jeremy Schneider. Jeremy, good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is really fun. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's been a while since I've been in a uh, Microsoft building here, since probably 20 years since my internship uh, when I was a Microsoft intern for two summers. Yep, so you were a Microsoft intern and you made a pretty sizable decision to not accept an offer to come to Microsoft. You did something else and according to the numbers that I'm looking at from your Instagram, we'll get deeper into that later, uh, you're worth about $3.8 million, and you, sir, are retired. <laughs> yeah, you know, I retired is kind of a weird word <laughs> when you use when you're not even 40 yet, but um, I don't have a day job. I don't have a nine to five, and I kind of direct my time as I see fit during the day, but uh, and yeah, that's about what I have in the bank right now. So so big lifestyle change at 36. Let's, let's, let's dive right into this thing. So uh, we know of each other because... I'm on this quest of, of, to just get better with money. I have a pretty young family. I've been trying to educate myself with money and personal finance these last couple of years. And lo and behold, I find your Instagram and personal finance club at personal finance club. And I just look at the content you're making and it's just exceptional, quick, easy, digestible snippets of how to invest, how to save, 
I ping you. I'm like I'm commenting on all your different posts. You're probably like, this guy's a, like a psycho. He's like, oh, he's all my stuff, commenting and telling me about frugality and whatever. Reached out and you said you'd come on the podcast and this is, this is a great experience. Yeah, thanks. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so a bit about my journey is I did turn down a Microsoft job. I was a punk uh, 21-year-old or something when I was graduating college and I got a very nice offer from Microsoft. I was a software developer, uh, graduated with a computer science degree. Um, and I basically decided I didn't really want to work for a huge company. I didn't want to leave. I was still dating a girl that was in my um, college town. And so I didn't really want to leave this town. I didn't want to work for a big company. So I decided to start a business. Um, fast forward 15 or 12 years or something. I sold that company for just over $5 million. And then I had this windfall of money. And so I wanted to be a good steward of the money. And so I basically started reading every book on personal finance and investing I could get my hands on. Um, and it turns out they all basically say the exact same thing. And it's a, it's a message that isn't being given to kids as part of the education system in our country. And it's not very complicated. It's not very hard. It's just, it's just not like part of our educational system. And so when I eventually quit my job uh, working for the company that acquired my company, I kind of was just so passionate about this stuff. And anytime I could talk to someone or show someone how investing worked, how personal finance worked, and basically changed their whole financial future, it was like such an empowering feeling for me. And so that's basically why I made Personal Finance Club, which is why we're here today. Um, so yeah, it's still, it's still a thing that I wake up in the morning and I'm pumped to talk about, pumped, pumped to do every single morning. It's like the thing that I'm still excited about now that I'm not having to like chase money just to like put food on the table. So, so, so much to unpack there. So let's go back to you know, you're this intern, you're making this decision, you have this opportunity to do something in your own or accept this, this job offer from this amazing company at the time. Um, what's going through your head in making a decision like that? I really liked working for Microsoft. I worked there two summers. The first was an SDET, Software Developer Engineer and Test. Do you still have that acronym here at Microsoft? I don't. I don't know. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. So one one off, one summer I was like an SDET, one as a SDE, which is just a Software Developer Engineer. Um, and I got a, you know the, the offer was for seventy four thousand dollars a year, which was now twenty years ago. So that's probably the equivalent of you know probably Pretty over great. six figures today. Plus, there's like another fifteen thousand dollar bonus, and this was an amount of money that was just mind-boggling to me. You know, I wasn't, we weren't poor growing up. I was middle class, but I basically w worked through college, wasn't given, you know, tons of money or anything. And so it was, you know, a little bit crazy to turn down that kind of money. Um, but I didn't really want to do it. And I, for some reason, was just naive enough to think that I could start a company. And so I, I did that instead. And, um, you know, I took, I had some like free Microsoft software that they gave to, you know, students at my university and sat down in my bedroom with my computer and just started like coding and, and starting this company that uh that i worked on for like 12 years so you're a, you're a techie guy at heart you went to university of michigan a computer science major masters in computer engineering after that honor societies was i think ada kappa nu which you mentioned i think on your one of your profiles is the same president of that club, which was the same position that Larry Page had. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so, so Larry Page, who's the, one of the two founders of Google, was president of the Michigan chapter of Ada Kappa Nu. And then several semesters later, I was you president. Fine, sir. And so, you know, we're similar in that regard, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that that was, that was a, a nice little anecdote there. So 
working this at this at this company for 11 years, 11 and a half years, your company, what was that like? Probably not paying yourself a crazy stipend or a salary. At some point, you had your mom come in and help you. I think she was doing some admin things. You're you know, young kid. Can you like what was going on in your brain and like how are you motivating yourself through that time? Sure. Well, first. Uh, my mom will probably listen to this and my mom wasn't just doing admin stuff. My mom also actually has a degree in computer science from the University of Michigan. Wow, okay. From like 1970-something. And so she was, I think, one of the first two or three or four years that computer science existed as a major. Um, And she had also a successful career in entrepreneurship. She was the second person in a company that was acquired um, after her working there for 10 years. And then she came to be the second person in my company and then worked with me kind of like on more of the business development side and basically mentorship. And um, she wasn't doing any coding at that point in her life, but she used to. Um, yeah, so mom did great. Uh, and we both did well from our uh, the acquisition. Um, but yeah, early days, it was, you know, I was just a hungry kid. I, in both the literal and metaphorical sense because I actually wanted food to eat and I didn't have any money. And so I was trying to just like find a product to sell, find a service to sell. So I basically started selling websites to local landlords in my area because they all had terrible websites. Uh, I kind of found that to be a niche and ended up making this whole business in the rental housing advertising space. So basically landlords were my um, customers and um yeah, for the first couple of years, I couldn't even afford to pay myself enough to live. And so I think my revenue, the company's revenue the first year in business was $14,000 um, minus expenses. And so I maybe took home like eight or $10,000 that year, which isn't enough to live on. Um, and so I was basically just racking up credit card debt. And so I was still living extremely frugally. So I, I think I racked up $10,000 of credit card debt plus the $8,000 the company provides. So I maybe lived on $18,000. These are approximate numbers. Um, and the next year, we did a little better. I racked up $2,000 more in credit card debt. And then the third year, we basically were doing so well, we had cash. And then the company gave, basically gave me $12,000 and I paid off all my credit card debt in one fell swoop. And so, um, but then from that point forward, until the day we sold the company, I never paid myself more than $36,000 per year. Um, and I was living in Southern California. I moved from Michigan to San Diego. We were hiring people. I was paying my engineers six figures in many cases. Um, there's only seven of us when we got acquired, but still, like, I was the lowest paid employee at the company. Um, and, you know, I was just driving a 99 Ford Explorer. And the purpose of that was to, re- you know, reinvest in the company. I didn't want to be basically burning the profit of this company on my lifestyle. I wanted to be hiring more and better people and, and be building a better company so that the big good thing would happen long down the road, which is what eventually happened, which is I sold the company for a lot of money. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's 12 years that I just packed into like maybe two minutes, but, um, that's some of the stuff that was going through my head when I was on the startup. So, so I love, and I didn't know, and, and most of the stuff I know about you, the research I've done is just your public facing Instagram profile, which I'm going to continuously talk about because people should check this out. It's amazing. And, you know, going back to how your mom helped you. So she was more, she was essentially like a business partner and like a mentor for you. And can you talk about what that looked like? Just I've never been able to rely on anyone in my family for that kind of role. What what did that do to help you get through sticky points, make decisions, business planning, business experience? How was that for you? Yeah, you know, 
your mileage may vary for sure. And this wasn't true of all of my parents, um, but with my mom, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to name any other names. Yeah, my yeah. mom, uh, I think we worked really well together, and she, yeah. um, you know, she had experience in startups, and um, you know, it, it was never her company; it was it was my company. I was the sole founder; I was always the majority mm-hmm. shareholder and everything. But um, but she, you know, brought basically I brought her on when I was trying to sell a state contract to the or a contract to the state of Michigan, uh, the housing department, and. I was just very nervous about walking there as a single person. I feel like if it's the same person that like answers the phone, who answers the emails, who shows up at the meetings, they know that you're a one-person show. But if two people show up and a different person answers the phone and answers the email, um, then you're like an N-person company. And so there's just like this assumption that there's like it's like one or more, more than there. one. And I feel like that's like this was this big factor. And so I, I felt like I needed to have another person. And she was kind of like semi-retired or on sabbatical. So she joined and we basically like pitched and got this very small state contract together. Um, yeah, so it was, it was nice. I think we worked really well together. I, I think there could have been some really like tension between us. But um, I made a decision very early on that this was my mother and I loved her dearly and I owed her my life for bringing me into this world and everything. And so even if she never did anything or was of no value to the company, like I was at peace with, um, you know, sharing in the rewards with her. Um, uh, but so that, well, the, so if, if you start from that as like the base case, then any value she provides on top of that is just all bonus. And so I feel like I looked at it only at, from the positive in that way. And so it ended up working really great. And we, it was just nice to have like a, a person you can trust unquestionably through you know any sort of negotiating the acquisition and things like that um so yeah for us it worked out great but like i said i i don't think it's always a good idea to go into business with your parents or whatever i'm sure every this is probably the exception more than it is the rule yeah that's why i wanted to drill down just because you know you there's a an implied trust and an implied like love in just mentioning the fact that you're would be doing anything with your mother you know anything any, any of us do with our mom we would hope that it would just be there's a lot of safety there so i think that's a really interesting uh, component of that um, so rent links why did you fo- decide to focus on like property management real estate given given that you probably didn't own your own home or didn't probably know a ton about that industry why was it that one that you focused on so I wish I had some really great answer for that. Like, oh, I had this brilliant idea when I was 20 years old and I had a, a vision of the future of the property management software landscape. But it wasn't that at all. It was literally, I was just hungry and trying to sell something. And so one example was my old landlord at the time, like the landlord of the place I just left from, like I knew their website was terrible. And I was in the first month or two of starting this company. And so I basically made them a website without asking them. I just was in my living room coding on my computer and I made them a website and then I emailed it to them and said, hey, would you like to buy this website that I just made for you without asking you? Um, and I got no response. And it probably took me, you know, the website made for them was pretty good. Like it was, you could search <laughs> and sort all the properties that they had and you can find them by availability and go through photo galleries. And this was many years ago. So it was like, you know, on the Top better notch. edge of yeah. websites at the time. And it took me like three days because I was like an aggressive, you know, working all day kind of coder back then. Um, and so got no response and I felt pretty bad about that. And wasting three days of work wasn't the end of the world because I wasn't getting paid anyway, but I felt like I needed to get an answer from them. And so I called him on the phone, which was terrifying for me because I'm very shy and calling people on the phone is very scary to me. But I was like... <laughs> 
I got to at least get a no, at least, you know, over the phone before I give up on this work. And so I call him over the phone and he answers and I say, hey, my name is Jeremy. I, I'm a former tenant of yours. I made you a website and sent you an email about it. Did you get it? Uh, and he said, no, I didn't. I was like, oh, um, can I send it to you again? And can you take a look? And he said, sure. And so I did. And at the time, it was literally hosted on a computer sitting in my living room. And so I could see how many people were like connecting to the database at any given moment, which would be zero because no one knew about this thing except for me and now him. Mm-hmm. And so I was like just watching this like activity monitor on the database. And it was at zero, zero, zero. And then all of a sudden it went to one. And so like he actually opened it up, uh, you know, for 20 seconds, something and then went back down to zero. And so and then there's this radio silence again. So I was like, well, you know, I tried. Uh, but then the phone rang and it was him and he said, yeah, that's great. We'll take it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and he's like, how much does it cost? And I didn't realize that was going to come up so soon in the sales process here. Uh, and so I said, it costs uh, $3,000 and 200 per month. Or I just literally made something up off the top of my head like that. And he's like, oh, 200 a month is fine, but can we do $2,000? I said, uh, let me check with my boss. And uh, I said, yeah, that'll work. And so... <laughs> Um, so I like, that's how I made a sale. So you asked, this was a very long story to ask, like, you know, what was the vision for getting to property management? That it literally was, that is how it started. It was just, I made a sale and I was like, oh wow, that was easy. Um, now I can just change the logo on the top of this website I made and then send that same exact email and phone call to every other property manager on the face of the planet. And then I've just sold, you know, 50 million websites at $200 a month and I'm a billionaire and, you know, I was very excited. And of course it was never quite that easy again, but, um, yeah, to answer your question more succinctly, I just was looking for ways to make money and going where the river took me at the time. And not that that's the best thing to do, but that's that's how I got started as a 22-year-old. You're in this circumstance where you're hungry and you're trying to feed yourself and you're like faster famine. And uh, I'm just like imagining this like smart coyote trying to figure things out <laughs> at the time. So now coming back to where you're at now and you've been pretty frugal and Throughout this period, you're kind of you're paying these folks that come on board. You have a seven person company. You're now managing and running this company, but you're still you're running up some credit card debt. You're living pretty frugally, but really that's that's kind of what Personal Finance Club is all about now. And it's just fast forwarding to the past experience of making this company now what you're doing today. How did that journey shape what you're doing today? Yeah, the frugality has kind of been in me since a child like my parents were you know pretty broke when they got together and by the time i was kind of high school age we were kind of middle class or upper middle class so i definitely don't have a rags to riches story um but they did they were very frugal because they got where they were by spending very little and you know living below their means and investing and they also talked to me about money and so i um one funny story about that is when i was i think 14 i got my first ever paid job and one of the rules of the Roth IRA is that I love talking about personal finance, by the way. And if you have Roth IRA questions at Personal Finance Club. But uh, one of the rules of the Roth IRA is that you can't contribute more than $6,000 per year this year. But also you can't contribute more than your earned income. So it's basically a, an investment account that's just for working people um, and kind of middle class working for people. You know, if you make a billion dollars, you actually aren't even eligible to contribute to a Roth IRA. Um, and so when I made my when I had my first job at twelve, I made twelve hundred dollars at the age of fourteen. My dad knew this rule, and so what he did is he took twelve hundred dollars of his own money and put it into a Roth IRA in my account. And so he basically 
matched my earnings. And so letter of the law, I contributed every single penny that I made to my Roth IRA that year, even though that was like a gift to me from him. And then he let me spend the 1200 bucks I made. But then he basically told me what he was doing. He said, this is a Roth IRA. We're opening it with Fidelity. You uh, you know, buy mutual funds with this money and then it grows over time. And as a 14-year-old, just kind of like soaking up everything in the world. Um, but now as an adult, that is a second nature to me. I was like, of course you open up you know, investment accounts. Of course you're buying what I call now index funds inside of these investment accounts. But then when I talk to other people my age, I'm almost 40, or younger people in their 20s, or people older than me even, and they don't they don't know this stuff. I was like, "What? You haven't been you haven't been contributing to a Roth IRA since you were 14?" You know, mm-hmm. obviously that was a little bit of an extreme example. But I thought, you know, once you got a job, everyone would be doing this, and that's not what happens. And so, um, because most people don't have the kind of you know childhood that I had, where money was being discussed and uh, good examples were being set, most people do what's just normal in the U.S., which is consume. Yeah, consume. They see car ads. They see credit cards. They you can buy stuff. You can go to stores. You can get subscriptions. You can get Amazon. It's just it's just consume, consume, consume. And then you know you have money, you spend money, and then this whole idea of living below your means and investing early and often just isn't really taught or talked about most mostly. And so that's where Personal Finance Club comes in, where I can basically take everything I know about this that I've learned through my lifetime of experience and everything I've learned from all the books and podcasts and everything else I've been consuming and um, basically share it back in like what's kind of easy, more bite-sized, consumable, digestible pieces on Instagram. Yeah, This is exactly why I just like your mission. I'm growing to like you more and more as a person because of what you stand for, what you've been doing. And uh, I did a little bit of research on some numbers just to kind of float us through this in case folks don't know. Um, And this is not a political discussion at all. This is just the facts. 189 million Americans have credit cards. Average household has a credit card debt of $8,398. I mean, and we're probably talking 25% to 28% interest rate. The U.S. Treasury reported in fiscal year 19 a federal deficit of about $984 billion. So it's a, almost a trillion, right? Yeah. U.S. consumer debt is $13.86 trillion. So almost 14x our deficit is in consumer debt, and that's, that's mortgages, that's student loans, that's credit cards. Auto debt is about 9.5% of that, which is absolutely massive, which it doubled over the last 10 years. So going back to your mission, and and we were talking before the, the we got on, we pressed record. You know what's going on, and you know what kind of mind shift do people need to have so they can start spending less than what they earn? Yeah, it's it's bananas. Another another fact on that same uh, like track that I, I amazes me is whenever they do studies that say what percent of Americans if had a like a $500 emergency expense could cover that in a week without borrowing money. And the number is like half, like mm-hmm. half of like adult Americans don't have $500. Like that's how close to the edge that so many are living. Um, and it's, you know, you can definitely get political about it and say there's wealth and equality problems, but there certainly are. And it's like a multi-tiered, multi-pronged, very complex problem. But, but one big part of that is just education. And it almost gets like to conspiracy theory, which is like when you talk about all that debt and all that spending on all, you know, cars and credit cards and student loans, all this, it's basically just feels like a trap that's being set for a normal American to basically work their whole life paying off the banks while they're 
an indentured servant just to like make these payments. They're not. And the world I grew up in is like, you don't do that. You just spend less than you have. Mm -hmm. And so if you, you don't spend beyond your means and spend the rest of your life paying the bank back, you just spend less than you have. And you're like above, you know, you're above water the whole time instead of below water. And so, yeah, I, I think that's bananas. And when you hear those numbers and when you look at the state of the world, it's really bad. And that's kind of like what drives me is like, I want to help get out the word that that's not how you have to live. If you just simplify things a little bit. Um, one example, like this is an example, kind of example of what I do on my Instagram. I have these Ashley versus Amanda examples. So there's a lot of emojis on my, um, I love it on my Instagram. <laughs> and I just try to make it simple. I try to make it like, you know, no, no, not sometimes people who are named Ashley or Amanda feel personally attacked. So I mix up the names, <laughs> I mix up the genders, I mix up the races. I make try it diverse to, and yeah, inclusive. Yeah. Right, <laughs> I try to try to not be, you know, just, I just, I want to kind of put a face or some face to some of these numbers. So here's one. So the average take-home pay in the U.S. is about $4,000 a month. I think their average uh, household income is about 60000 bucks. After taxes, more or less, it's about 4000 bucks a month. So Ashley brings home 4000 bucks a month, and she spends 4000 bucks a month. And if you're a person living in the U.S., you probably know it's pretty easy to spend 4000 bucks a month, you know. Rents a thousand or fifteen hundred. Your car payments five hundred. Your Amazon, yeah, your Amazon's <laughs> another two thousand. You know, I'm just kidding, but you know, trips and insurance and mm -hmm. cell phone bill and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for sure. So she just lives normal and she goes on trips and she drives a car and everything's normal. But then fast forward four years when she's retirement age, she basically has no money because she spent every dollar she made and now uh, at that kind of income, she's looking at about nineteen hundred dollars a month that Social Security might provide in 40 years who knows mm -hmm. if it still will or whatever um and that's not a fun place to be where you basically have to work your whole life you make no progress and then suddenly in retirement you're in poverty mm -hmm. um but then amanda also takes four thousand dollars a month home from her job but instead of spending four thousand a month she spends thirty two hundred dollars a month and those numbers sound pretty close it's eight hundred dollars a month difference uh her life looks almost the same maybe her apartment is a little bit like less nice, a little bit older, a little bit less fancy. But when her friends come over, no one even notices. Maybe her car is a few years older, no one notices. Maybe when she goes on trips, instead of staying in a hotel, she stays in an Airbnb. No one cares. Like looking at their two lives, Ashley and Amanda, their lives are virtually identical from the outside looking in. But Amanda, what she does is she takes the difference, the 800 bucks a month, and she just invests it in a low fee index fund for those 40 years. And then at retirement, she has over $2 million. So it's like that. That's how you become a millionaire, that kind of mindset where it's just live below your means, invest early and often. And when you look at their two lives over those 40 years, it's not like Amanda was living in poverty or was wearing rags and was begging for change. They, their lives looked identical from the outside mm -hmm. in, but she just wasn't burning money quite as much as, you know, Ashley. And, and there's another saying, you can't out earn bad spending habits like i use the number four thousand but if i said eight thousand you can for Doesn't sure spend matter. eight thousand a month right like it's just a different car it's just a different house it's just a different trip you can for sure spend it so any any income level you're at if you can just dial down your living expenses just a little bit and invest that delta then you're basically rich over a career and um, again you're you're talking about eight hundred dollars i mean that's the difference of someone having a, a bmw and not and driving their yeah. their ten year old car. That's a difference between someone buying a luxury watch this year or not. It's not massive. Yeah. This is I think this is relevant for us, right, Jeremy? Like we, we live in Southern California. 
we're doing this podcast in Orange County, and there's a little bit of ego. And I mean, I've I've been a creature of this in my 20s too. I, it took me a, a lot longer than it took you to get learned up on money, so to speak. And I'm so glad finally it hit me. You know, it, yeah. most people are still in this world of crazy spending. You think about like mortgages, for for instance, like, you know, you're talking about cars, we're talking about mortgages. I think two of the biggest purchases we'll ever make, the California average mortgage, which this is not crazy, but about $334,000, uh, which is average mor- mortgage. The, the national average is 192000 um, which you would expect. The California property is, is pretty high. Credit card debt in California, 5000 uh, in San Francisco, it's seven thousand. Uh, student loans, California, twenty-eight thousand. National average is about thirty-seven thousand. So we're talking about a ton of debt, and then piled on top of that, folks are getting into these vehicles. So let's start. Let's start with the cars, and then let's creep our way into the mortgage. When you're thinking about the average monthly payment for a car, it's about 550 bucks, and I'll I'll post all the links for all this, the stats yeah. on the, in in the show notes. 69 month average term, so 550 dollars a month for 70 months is average. Yeah, and I'm no saint. Like I've I've done I made <laughs> made some very bad There's no mistakes. judgment zone. This yeah, isn't about I've made pointing some fingers. Very but. stupid uh, mistakes with the car, but you know what is the differentiator like when you think about and hopefully we can create some mind shifts mindset shifts here when you think about when you went to go purchase your car that you've had i think you ford explorer that you got for like nothing and then you sold it for half of nothing which yeah. is what were you thinking when you made a purchase like that and maybe talk about that purchase yeah, so that that five hundred fifty dollars a month as the average car payment is just bananas. And if you again, if you look at that, so and, and the sixty nine month term is just also bananas. And, and so if you think about buying one car, so from the age of twenty five to thirty two, if you like, you know, you've financed this thing over seven years or whatever, so hopefully you can drive it for seven years. You put five hundred fifty bucks a month for seven years. If instead of putting that into a car, you're investing it, it's like a million dollars at retirement. If you're just investing five hundred fifty bucks a month. For those seven years, then wait till you're old. It's it's only a million dollars, and so, you know, do you like that car a million dollars? You know, is it is it worth a million dollars? And and I think that it's just so easy to buy a new car because you just walk into the car dealership and there's a guy who like offers you a bottle of water and you he wants you to take you for a test drive and he tells you about the alloy wheels and the moonroof and the blind spot detection and you know and you just he's like oh you can drive it home today and you just have to sign he, they always bring out this little square that's got all these little numbers in it and they're like this is the term and this is the payment and like what what kind of payment are you looking to get into and and just it just feels so normal when you're there you're like oh this is how people buy cars you go to the car store and he gives you a little square and you tell him how much you want to pay and then you drive a car home but but then when you like step back and like look at the map it's like you just cost yourself a million dollars it's like the whole time you're driving this car you're like oh i wish i was a millionaire you could be if you weren't driving that car because that car is costing you a million dollars and so um yeah so when i bought so when i moved to san diego uh i had you know i think i had six thousand dollars uh just like in my bank account or whatever and so i wanted a car and so i bought a car for three thousand dollars um that way i still had three thousand dollars left and i had a car as a 99 ford explorer it was a two-door 
Uh, so and it was a Tudor SUV. So it was like that perfect combination of poor gas mileage and inconvenience that you always look for in a car. Um, and I just, you know, it's, just, it's so cute. Wait, hold for laugh. Um, no, and you, I just, I don't know. I'm a little bit lost for because I, you know, you ask what's the mindset, and it's like I just didn't want to spend more than I had. I yeah. wanted to spend less yeah. than I had, and I, and maybe the time that like million dollar cost wasn't as clear to me, but I didn't like the idea of having to like go work every single month and then have like the first six days of my work month just going straight to driving that car that I already paid for two years ago. Mm-hmm. But where instead that car I bought in cash, and then the first six days of my month instead of going paying for something i bought in the past was going towards my future and investing and so yeah over that over that period where i um, was making thirty six thousand dollars a year living in southern california at the age of 34 never made more than 36k um and i just was living on less than that i was living on about thirty one thousand a year and investing about five thousand a year and then my net worth at that time was like about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars or something and so not i wasn't a millionaire at that point but that's not bad for living in southern california making like basically poverty line type income and i for sure would have been a millionaire if i continued on that path because starting at one hundred twenty thousand, that's going to double every you know seven years or so plus all the new money i was contributing so i i for sure would have been a millionaire living on thirty six thousand. just got fast forward when i sold my company everything around that and and again i i'm just thinking about when you're telling me this story you're you're coming from a completely different place than most people come from and that's the strength of having thought leaders and following thought leaders and really dissecting why they're thinking a certain way i had a friend of mine in my mid-20s he was like one of the top salespeople at like lexus and an infinity and I just had gotten out of a, a bad relationship, not a bad relationship. I had gotten out of a relationship, which is always bad at the time. And he said, oh, come on down, come on down to the dealership. That was this thing. He would text me, come on down, you know, we'll make you feel better. And I'm like, oh man. So I'm like, I'm like, look, I'm not going to get into this vehicle because I can't afford it. I'm just telling you, but I'll come on down and just talk to you about what happened. And, it'll, and he already had the, the infinity parked outside. The, <laughs> the doors were open. He uh. had like my favorite song on <laughs> and he, like he had this the seat heater was on and yeah. he like he was like he's like he's like look he's like like the ladies love the seat heater like you're not gonna have any any trouble dating i'm like <laughs> just totally like sold me hard did you and buy I, that car I, I, yeah oh my yeah, gosh yeah. he got you I, I, he got me and um it was a great car but uh <laughs> you know but it was it was emotional it was an emotional purchase. It was an emotional totally. sell. Yeah. Even the new car smell that they said that they, I mean, they have air fresheners with new car smell. Yeah. It's an, it's emotional thing. It's emotional attach, uh, yeah. attachment. All a new car smell is, is low level volatile organic compounds <laughs> off gassing from the material plastics, yeah. the paints, the things are going into the air. You're smelling that those things it's brand new. And that's what people want. So I think there's this cultural, this cultural thing. So, so we're talking about cars and you must be a very secure, like when you, when you think about yourself, are you more, do you feel more self-secure in your decisions? That Was that built through risks that you took on early? I'm thinking it can't just be a money, like you going through this thing with money when you're 14. When you think about the way you grew up and what's valuable to you, do you think that had some kind of impact on how you spend? These are hard questions, man. It's like a therapy. Session. Why, <laughs> yeah. why are you the way you are? <laughs> it's it's um, important, you know? No, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, you know, 
I get the whole you walk into the Lexus dealership. Like I get that. And I think it impacts me a little bit. But before we start recording, you asked me if my friends think I'm a like a psychopath or a sociopath or something. And I think that I am a little bit just because I'm very like, you know, yeah. I'm a very numbers oriented guy. And so um, I, I think I'm more able to step back and look at that from a very objective perspective and say, okay, there's a guy being very nice to me at this car dealership, but he's got a commission online and this car looks very good. But when I go outside and look on the road and scan the parking lot, it's just a bunch of cars. Like, I don't care what any of those cars look like. No one cares what any those cars look like. And when I'm dating a girl, I've never had a girl get in my 99 Ford Explorer and say, you know what? I don't think it's going to work out between us. Like, it's, it's almost laughable. I'm really laughing at that theory because, or that, that idea because if a girl said that, I'd be, I'd be like, great, get out of here. Then if like, you're, you're dating me because of the car I'm driving, like, yeah, who cares? Yeah. Like, this car is going like, to, I took that car on great trips. We like, I drove all the way down to like Baja, California and did road trips around the US and like, it worked great and it was cool and it was, you know, um, you know, I think, would heat seeders have been made it better? I don't know, maybe a little <laughs> bit, but I don't think, I, I don't think a girl is going to, you know, no. decide to date with me. A girl or a that. guy, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe more than most, I just have a very analytical perspective on things. Um, but I think anyone can attempt to take a step back and say, okay, am I making an emotional decision here? Like, what's what's really this car going to do for my life? What's the mathematical impact? And I, and I think that, you know, the Instagram is kind of like slowly dropping those like seeds of doubt into people's minds because we've all grown up in this world where all you know is Lexus ads and car dealerships and and you know tv ads and friends talking about it and, and it's just like this world where we all are just buying into this but it doesn't have to be that way you know when you really think about it, you're like okay the car isn't making me happier it's not going to make more people like me or it's not going to make my quality of life better um, but it is going to add years to my working career you know when you when we talk about a million bucks like what that car costs a person over a career everyone's like oh i wish i either was a millionaire or i had a week vacation that car cost you probably two or three years of your working career so if you want a week of pto that car was three years of pto yeah. right yeah. and if you just drove a 99 ford explorer and said i mean i'm not trying to pick on you but if a person just drives like a a used car rather than a new car for five years that's like a year of your working career mm -hmm. you get a whole year of pto for that so when you think about it in terms of that you're like oh actually uh a, a, like a used car isn't that bad and i actually think like when i see someone driving a used car it's like good for you man that's cool it's like shows confidence it shows like what like a wise attitude about money and about life mm -hmm. um i like when people drive crappy cars so um you know but again it's just a different mindset i guess yeah yeah so the last comment about cars so i, I learned my lesson uh, it did take me going and having to get into, we'll, we'll come across this later, get into some student loan debt. I went back to school, got my MBA at UT a University in Austin, Hook'em Horns, and learned something about accounting. Took some accounting classes, learned something about finance. I took a finance class and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't learn this at UCI in my environmental engineering courses. Like, it's crazy. And I took a private wealth management class, which was the most amazing thing I've ever done. It was taking that one semester class and learn some things about why we should be buying used cars. So my wife, she had, we went and bought an Acura MDX, like a, I don't know, like a 13 year old, 14 year old vehicle that she has today. Too. Nice. And then one of my buddies was going to medical school or doing, or doing a fellowship and he had a, an older infinity older than the one I bought for my friend with the, the, the seat <laughs> heaters. 
five thousand bucks bought the Infinity from him, and it's the best two purchases we've ever made. And my friends That's with awesome. Teslas and all those different things, when they drive up and they, I just feel so much more empowered because Good it's it's just a, yeah. it's a it's a it's a new way to live. It's a new way to live. So housing. So we're 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 this is where the delineation between where people thought you were not a psychopath and maybe people will <laughs> think you are now. Okay, this, this, is, this, is some, this is some really great stuff. So a lot of millennials are in this mindset that renting is sometimes or maybe always better than, than purchasing. And then in 2018, Florida Atlantic University did this study where they looked at 28 metro areas across the United States, so even New York metro area, Los Angeles metro areas, and they built a couple models and they basically said, hey, if you buy and or if you rent a comparable home and you take the difference between the rental costs and the uh, mortgage of that home, given the, the property taxes, all, all the, the features and functionalities and excuses that people make around why buying a house is better. Yeah. Let's make an apples and an apples, but take the difference from that rental income and, and put it into the market. In terms of wealth creation, rent is better. Yeah. And that, I'm sure, is blowing people's minds because everyone is like, oh, you know, a home is an, a- an asset, a home is an asset. It's not. It's liability. I agree. Um, you've been in a one-bedroom apartment for the last five years as a, a millionaire, as a, someone that's retired. Like, t- tell, us, so tell us about your qualms with home ownership and give us an update on where you're at today with that. Yeah, so... Again, I'm just a slave to the math here. Um, and I think there are, is like another, again, like just American belief that if you don't buy a home, you're a failure. It's like a step in life that everyone has to take. It's the best investment you'll ever make. And none of that is true in my opinion. If you look at the you know average home price index over the last you know, 40, 50 years, it basically has about kept up with inflation. So it's worth the same that when you sell it as when you buy it. Um, but there's huge costs associated with owning a house, like property tax and mortgage interest and maintenance and insurance and realtor fees and all that stuff is just sunk cost. So it's like this its an, this investment that basically matches inflation, but you have to dump huge amounts of money into just to maintain, right? And so, right, if you can live a little bit inexpensively and then invest the difference, which is what that study did that you just referenced, you'll end up so dramatically far ahead. And so, um, and you know, I'm, I don't really have like a horse in this race. I don't, I'm not a realtor. I'm not like a, in the <laughs> rental space. I think like I was just a guy who every six months would like look at Zillow or Redfin and drool over these like fancy homes. And then I'd do the math. I was like, Nope, not worth, like not worth burning all my money, you know? Um, and so, yeah, for, and I, I guess my thinking was every month that I live in this one bedroom apartment, I'm becoming more wealthy because my money is growing faster elsewhere. My, um, my expenses are low and I was happy, you know, you know, again, you kind of look at the houses on Redfin and you drool, but then one weird thing about having this money that I have now is like, I can do the thought experiment of what would happen if I actually lived there. Would friends like me more? Would I walk in every day and just have this like inner sense of happiness that I don't have when I walk into my perfectly nice Could you apartment? host people and have magnificent barbecues? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. Would yeah. I, I mean, people came to my house, like maybe the seating would be slightly better, but I don't think they'd like me more. I don't think I'd be more happy, you know? Um, so all that said, I'm actually a, a big fraud because I actually did just buy a place. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but why did you buy a place? Like, how did you buy it? Which is interesting. And why did you buy it? Yeah. So I bought a two bedroom condo. So I wasn't a one bedroom apartment. I bought a two bedroom condo. It's, you know, it's pretty nice. Uh, 
depends what you compare it to, I guess. It's a little bit close to the beach. It's like in a three-unit building. It's it's not outrageous. It's uh, you know probably about twenty percent of my net worth now is in this house. Um, you paid cash for it. Well, I tried to get a mortgage, uh, and um, I was, the, the purchase price was seven hundred twelve thousand dollars. And then I there's this mortgage guy who had been trying to sell me a mortgage for like the last two years. And so I, I finally <laughs> like guy. I finally emailed him. I was like, "Great news! I'm buying a house." You know, and I and I, I wrestled with the decision of like, do I just pay cash or do I get a mortgage? Um, and then I was like, you know what? I don't. The, the conclusion I came to was I didn't want to have too much of my money like not diversified. If you have, if I even had seven hundred grand in one single property, then it's it's kind of like too concentrated. And and so I was like, what I'll do is I'll take fifty percent down. And I'll put a 50% mortgage and I'll, I'll invest the rest. And that's kind of like a balance of the, the leverage and the risk I was willing to accept and helping diversify. And so I go to the guy, give him all my documents. I say, great news. I've never, you know, I've owned this successful business that was making a million dollars a year. I sold it for $5 million a year. I was making six figures. I My investments generate $300,000 a year. I've never had a year in my taxes in the last 10 years. That's shown less than six figures. And then he came back to me and said, you do not qualify for any mortgage because you don't have a job. And I was like, what are you talking about? I, I can I can pay it off with a check on any day that I want to. And and I just think that's like a weird aspect of the of the uh the mortgage industry, how they they really want to see W two. And it almost like feeds into my conspiracy theory where they just want like these indentured servants who are gonna keep paying interest. Yeah, paying interest and keep going to work to make that payment. And you know, a rich guy that can pay it off in a day isn't interesting to them because maybe he will pay it off and then they've done this work and or for nothing or whatever. And so I was like, all right, well, stop eating on me, try me, sell me a mortgage then. And I just wrote a check and bought in cash. Um, so yeah, that's what I do now. And, and so why did I do it? You know, it, it really was like a very modest quality of life increase. My brother comes to visit a lot and he was basically sleeping sleep on my couch for weeks at a time because he works in San Diego. Like other out of town friends, I wanted a guest room, a um, little bit nicer to host. Like these are all very like, like am I happier that I live there now? Like, I don't think so. I think I'm the same happy um but you know you can afford it though yeah i can afford it so which is which is why it's a it's an it's an emotional purchase it's an emotional asset and you were able to incur that emotional asset or that that quality of life asset because you could afford it yeah and it's not a tax shelter it's not a wealth creator i think being in california a lot of folks i mean my family it gets so much pressure from my family and friends and my boss is like you gotta buy a house you gotta put your your kids in a house we're renting right now and keep renting i just i don't i don't see it you know i I, i'm not i'm not completely convinced i think i think there's a lot like a generation of people who have this like mindset which is your home is the best investment you'll ever make but I think there's a generation of people where it's the only investment they've ever made. Yeah, you know they, you know, a home is basically a forced savings account. You know, you're forced to make that thousand or two thousand dollar mortgage payment every month because if you don't, you'll be homeless and you'll be, you'll be evicted, you'll be foreclosed, and so you have no choice but to make that payment. Then everything else in your life you can spend, and so that's what a lot of people do. That's what's normal because no one's teaching or telling you to do anything different. So fast forward forty years, you're sixty five. You've spent every dollar to your name, but then you have a home that's worth three hundred thousand dollars, and you said, "Wow, I bought that for one hundred and fifty. Now it's worth three hundred. What a great, what a great investment!" But if you were putting that two thousand a month into an, a real investment instead of a home that you've been living in, instead of having three hundred thousand, you'd have three million. You'd have you'd have millions of dollars, and so they don't see the opportunity cost of not investing 
in the market and in index funds and in investment real estate where renters are paying you. Um, that's how you actually build a lot of wealth. But if that's the only investment you've ever made, then it's definitely better than having no house. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably a lot of folks that have families, dual working parents, single working parents, whatever. Um, there's a lot of people who obviously just from the national numbers for household credit card debt in 8,300 bucks a month, let's start talking about maybe things that people can do now that we've had this like great discussion around mindset and, and purchasing. And, and I hope, hopefully it's gotten through to some folks around why this is so important. So, you know, maybe you make a hundred thousand dollars a year. I, I, mean, I don't know if it's, it's, it would be helpful to throw out some numbers, but I'm just trying to figure out like, how should people start putting money away? Where should they put it? How often if they have debt, should they pay that off first? What are some things that you and I mean I mean just looking at your your Instagram account you started it back in 2018 uh 2019 2019 like 13 months ago or something yeah you have 60,000 followers in 13 months so what you're preaching is it's hitting people what should people start doing if they're not saving enough if they're not even thinking about these different conversations if they're trying to and they can't like what's some coaching yeah i'd say the very first thing that i would mention even when you ask that question it's like terrifying i feel like people listening and even myself like your stomach gets in knots you're like oh my gosh there's so much to do there's like insurance and there's tax and there's savings and there's investing and there's debt and there's more and there's all these things in your head spin so i'd say the very first thing is focus i think the very first thing you should do before anything else is pay off all your debt that's not your house and do nothing else until you do that pay off your pay off all your debt that's not your house and the reason focus is so important is because most people who are in this sort of financial confusing mess it's not because they're bad at math you know people are really good at math you know they can look at two different interest rates and tell you which one's higher they can tell you how much their house is going up in value they can tell that stuff but but it's it's kind of a behavioral thing where they're just trying to do all this stuff at once and they get overwhelmed and then just everything comes off the rails and so number one focus pay off all your debt that's not your house. So if you have a car, if you have a student loan, if you have credit cards, if you have medical debt, if you have a, a loan from a friend. And I really love what's called the snowball method. I've actually changed my mind on this over the years. I used to basically, when you're, let's say you've got five debts and you have three different credit cards and you've got a car and a student loan and the credit cards are 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, the car is 4,000, the student loan is 5,000 just for the sake of simplicity. And then the interest rates all over the place, like the student loan debt's high, the car debt's low, whatever, whatever. I'd say ignore the interest rate and sort them from smallest to largest. And the reason is, and the, when people hear this at first, they're like, no, technically you should pay off the highest interest rate first. I was like, did you get to where you are by being really good at math? Because it ain't working, you know? <laughs> yeah. The reason you're where you are is because you have a behavioral problem with money, which is you're not focusing and just systematically knocking these things out. And so if you can sort those five debts I mentioned and go after the smallest one first, the $1,000 credit card debt first, and do nothing else, you make minimum payments on everything else, you stop investing, you stop going out, you stop spending, you stop doing everything and do nothing else and you knock out that first debt as fast as possible. Maybe you can do it in a month, maybe you can do it in six weeks or two weeks or whatever it is suddenly your life just got a little bit simpler. You went from five debts to four debts. And better than that, one payment you were making, you no longer need to make. 
that credit card you now cut up, throw it away, whatever, and that payment you were making on the smallest pay- on the credit card plus all those additional payments you're throwing at it, now your whole life is about killing the new smallest debt, that $2,000 debt. And then you just it snowballs, right? Because as these payments start disappearing, you're freeing up more and more and more of your monthly income to throw at the next thing. Then when you have no consumer debt in the world, you have no debt except your mortgage, suddenly you, you have this like powerful tool, which is your income, this weapon, which with you can build massive amounts of income. And when I say this to people at first, they get nervous and they say, oh, but I won't have any cash if I put all my cash. You already don't have cash. You're broke. You've got negative money. You have debt. That's what it is. And they say, oh, but I don't, I don't want to wait to invest. I'm like... You aren't, if you're not going to be able to invest if you don't have money to invest with, right? So the first step is to clean this mess, get, get, uh, get all that debt done. And then once you have that powerful income, then you can start investing. So that's my first step. Focus, pay off all your non-mortgage debt first. You're paying off debt. Obviously, you're going you're gonna to say things like, you know, if you contribute to some Roth IRAs, do that if your income is high or low enough. I forgot what the, the annual threshold is. Uh, there's traditional IRAs. There's re- retirement vehicles. Is there a percentage that you recommend? And then where do you put it? So that's the next step. Once you're done with debt, then you start investing. And I've got a little list on my Instagram page that shows like basically the accounts and how I prioritize them. Mm-hmm. The very first one is a, a 401k or 403b up to the match if offered. And so at Microsoft, I'm sure you guys have a 401k offer, option. I'm sure that you have a match. And so when you have a match, that means your company is willing to pay you more money if you take advantage of your own retirement investment option. And if you don't do that, it's essentially throwing away free money. Um, So that's the first step. Second step is if you have an HSA, then I would do that, but that gets kind of complicated. So the second step is usually a Roth IRA. And for sure, there's an income limit, but if you are over the income limit, which is like 122,000 as an individual, or I think 183 as a couple, um, if you're over that, you can do what's called a backdoor Roth IRA. So basically, at any limit, you can contribute to a Roth IRA, and that's $6,000. So step one is 401 kept to a match. Step two is Roth IRA, $6,000, maybe backdoor Roth IRA. Step three is you go back to your 401k and max it out. The max this year is $19,500. And then step four, if you've done all those, then you can do just a regular old brokerage account. And all these different accounts, 401k, Roth IRA, all they are is just special accounts just like a checking account or a savings account that have special tax rules and this is like the number one thing that people get confused on is they're just accounts into which you put money and then once the money is in there you invest and so it's not anything crazy fancy or complicated anything it's just an account like just like your checking account that you open you put money in but then once the money's in there the government gives you a little bit of a tax break which is why you prioritize it in that order to get take advantage of the tax break and then that last step is that once you've used up all those different tax breaks, which are limited because the government doesn't want to be giving massive tax breaks to the massively wealthy, then you can just invest in a regular old brokerage account, which is still great because it still goes up in value and the government only taxes you on what you make, um, but it's not as good as the other ones. So yeah, step one, pay off all your debt. Step two, invest in all these investment accounts in order. You asked how much. In my opinion, I think it's a good idea to go to an online retirement calculator. I have one on my website, personalfinanceclub.com, and basically put in your numbers. How old are you? How much money do you have invested? How much money can you contribute? And basically see where you end up. And if you are going to be at retirement and have maybe two times the amount of money you spend every year, then that's trouble because you're going to be able to live for two years and then you'll be in poverty. Um, if you're going to be 65 and you'll have 100 times of what you spend every year, then you're going to be fabulously wealthy and can, you know, 4x your spending and still never 
uh, worry about going, you know, going broke. And so, you know, I think it's highly dependent on where you're at. And if you're st- if you're broke and you're starting at 50, you're going to have to put a massive amount of your income in every month. If you're 22 and you're starting out, you know, maybe five or 10 percent of your income is going to be a ton of money, um, depending on when you want to retire. You know, if you're 22 and you want to retire at 35, then you have to put in about half your income um, because that's how much it'll take to build that wealth in just um, you know whatever it is, 13 years. I, I think I asked you uh, in in. By the way, you get back to almost every single person that pings you on your. On I try, but it's, it's eventually getting overwhelming. Yeah, so if yeah. you message me and you don't get a response, I apologize. don't worry. Well, we'll leave a comment because most of the time you, it's probably easier for you to get back to folks in comments or you like their comments. I've seen you respond quite a bit. I asked a question. Um, this is well, well before we actually were on speaking terms or anything. And I'm like, hey, you know, should I save for a house? Because obviously I'm getting that pressure from the family. I'm renting right now of a family. Should I save for a house or should I save for retirement? Because I'm saving quite a bit for retirement. And you said, well, how much do you need for retirement? Figure that out. Understand where you need to be and then work backward and then save the rest for a house, which it's so it's so simple. And I was with my wife at the time. I'm like, honey... Jeremy just pinged me back on you know on uh, on Instagram and he's like, well, how much do you need for retirement? And figured out from there. And it seems like so easy to know that, but that little coaching is like, you yeah. know, tighten up your grip on the bat before you swing. Like, there's certain things that folks need help with. Yeah, and it's not taught. And so it, you know, I don't I don't blame you or anyone just because we, it's not. It's like again that mindset that we're just not used to thinking about in those terms. Just thinking about like in the moment, like monthly payments. Yeah, I have one post on just like the mantra of the of the broke is the monthly payment. It's like what you know, what do I spend money money on this month? But the mantra of the wealthy is total amounts. What's my net worth? What is it going to be worth? How 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 can I make this much money grow? What's what's the total cost of the car? Not what's my monthly payment going to be? And so when you get out of that like monthly payment rat race, you know indentured servitude world and start thinking about how much money do I have? How much money do I need? How do I make it grow? I think that's where you start to build wealth. A lot of folks have student loan debt a lot. I mean, just uh, very, very frankly, I think the majority of my school was paid for out of my pocket. I had some grants and scholarships because it uh, had some low income um, uh, values coming in from my parents. Um, So I was able the California state helped me quite a bit. But I wasn't good with money. I took on all kinds of extra loans. So I think I had around $30,000 in student loans. I think $10,000 was a parent loan from my mom um, that she kind of took out uh, for me. And, you know, she's she's also not the best with money. Lack of education, not a lack of, you know, intelligence on both sides. And then going into graduate school, I took on another, I think, $150,000 in debt. So it's, And I was paying minimums. Throughout my twenty, I was making, yeah. I was in, in sales, was making pretty good money. Could have just paid that off. I didn't. I just didn't know. Yeah. Right. I was just paying oh, the minimum, the minimum, and then finally, I could take some accounting classes in school, figure out. Oh my god, yeah. this is what interest rates are. This is how this works. My wife and I, we paid off about two hundred k in student loans pretty quickly, like in three years. Made uh, a ton of sacrifice. So we're done. We're debt free, right? Oh my god, that's amazing. It, it's so important to be debt-free. This is the first time I've been debt-free. It started in January when we finally hit that that threshold. But I had been in debt since I was 19 or 17 or something. Yeah. And the amount of freedom that it creates, and that's kind of why I wanted to have this podcast with you. We're not talking technology. We're really talking about how can we become better human beings. Yeah. Um, folks that need to pay off student loans, like why is it important to pay that off? 
I have a great example for that. It's like almost exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> of course you and, do, yeah. And almost exactly like your own situation. So it's another, if you're listening to the podcast, you can have to imagine two little emojis. One's, one is named Michael and one is named Matthew. Both Michael and Matthew graduated $40,000 in student debt. Your, your grad debt was like pretty massive. And so like props to you for getting rid of that. That's amazing. I think 40000 is more typical yeah. maybe of, of most student loans. Um, and so Michael... He has 40,000 student debt. He pays the minimum. He pays 250 a month um, until it's gone, and then he invests the rest. And so Michael, and I think you know, I, they graduate 25 or something with this debt. So um, Michael is debt-free at 45, and then when he, uh, so after, you know, and 45 is not crazy. Like, we're both looking at 40 around the corner pretty yeah, soon here. Yeah, um, And we both have lots of friends our age who are still in student loan debt, right? Yep. Um, and so, you know, Michael's pretty typical of that. And then when he's 45, he finally gets out of debt. And then he takes those debt payments he was making and puts them towards investing. And then when he's at retirement age at 65, his investments have grown to 191000 bucks. So not terrible. Like, two hundred grand is not terrible, but it's also going to be a pretty lean retirement, you know, between that and social security, maybe he's going to make it. Um, so Matthew, on the other hand, also has the exact same student debt, $40,000. But what he does is he just pays double payments. Instead of paying $250 a month, he, pay, he pays $500 a month. And so he pays, he pays more towards his debt. And then when he's debt-free, he invests twice as much too. So instead of being at debt-free at 45, he's debt-free at 33. Also not that crazy. Uh, you know, we know people who are 33 who got debt free, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. not that different so far, but instead of having $191,000 retirement, his investments at retirement have grown to $1.4 million starting at 33. St- his, yeah, the <clears throat> exact same. So he's made twice the payments towards debt and towards investing. Mm-hmm. So over his career, he's put in two times as much money, mm-hmm. but his net worth is over seven times as much. So it just shows like the massive impact that student loans have, that debt has, and this massive like slingshot effect of getting out of debt sooner. Because that, as like you know, a nerd and a computer scientist and a math guy, it seems so crazy to me that just because there's like this negative compound interest for a while and then positive compound interest, when you just put double the payment, you get seven times more money. Um, and so, and I think that's yeah. what you, you learned that, you know, yours wasn't a hard way. Yeah. You yeah. learned that when you were in school and kind of, and it wasn't quite as like simple of a situation as this, but you're like, whoa, I, you went from basically being a Matthew to being a Michael. You said, I don't want to, I don't want to be in debt until I'm 50 and then slowly dig out. Like I'm going to get rid of it fast. And now I think you're in the wealth building phase, which is great. So, so yeah. So for those in student loans, that's just why I go back to focus and say, get rid of them. Go nuts. Mm-hmm. Like you got rid of six figures in debt in three years. That's incredibly impressive. Um, whatever your numbers are, just think about how much can you just just throw it and you know, pick up an extra job, you do a side hustle, you stop going out to eat, you know, you're bartending on Friday nights instead of going to the bar on Friday nights. Whatever you can do to just bring up some extra cash for as a temporary situation, just to get out of that debt and get 100% debt free. Then once you're over that hump and you're in the wealth building phase, it's, then it's gonna, things are going to take off because you're not making banks rich every month by making those payments. One of the things that I did, and again, this is for me, and, and I keep on bringing up my personal journey because I was so incredibly bad with money. And today, I think uh, me and my wife and my family have come so much further. I think I see other folks that just haven't gotten there yet, or they've always been good with money, or it's, it's, it's all over the spectrum. But for the most part, people are just not good with money. And one of the biggest things is this rule of 72. Your money doubles. Uh, this is like this quick uh, equation. So you take uh, 72 divided by the rate of return you expect to get in the market, yep. and that will tell you how exactly. long your money will double. So 10% rate of return, 
I think those are nominal, nominal return, 7.2 years, yep. your money will double. And I would literally go around the house and see crap that I could, and I was got into minimalism for a while and see crap. If, yeah. if I could sell this thing on, on offer up or Craigslist or whatever for more than 20 bucks, I would sell it. And, That's and friends would be like, what, what are you selling that thing for? I'm like, dude, 20 bucks in 7.2 years. It's 40 bucks, man. <laughs> <laughs> so like, it's so that, so that kind of mentality is it's, it's, it's something that people need to start thinking about, right? Like, like this minimalism, like how this money is doubling. Yeah. And these are the kind of numbers that are running through your head. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think about that all the time. And yeah, this, this, the rule of 72, I think about it all the time. And, and you know, you're a 20 to $40 example. I feel like a podcast listener would be like, oh, who cares? 20 bucks, 40 bucks. What's the difference? But, you know, think about something that costs $5,000 when you're 25. Between 25 and 65, that's 40 years. And so that's almost, what is that, five doubles? And so if you have 5,000 bucks, one double is 10,000, two is 20,000, 40,000, 80,000, 160,000 bucks. So your 5,000 that you just blew on that stereo system at 25 is $160,000, you know, and that's just a one-time thing, right? You know, you think about, and so when you were looking around, I think when you said the 20 to $40 thing, what you were really seeing is like the cumulative effect over items and over time, mm-hmm. this could be a massive amount of money. And it's just so easy to not think in those terms and just burn money. You know, you're at Target, spend money. You're at Costco, spend money. You just spend, 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 spend. But if you can just dial that back just a little bit and then take advantage of that compound growth and that doubling over time, you build a massive amount of money. And that's how most millionaires make their money by early and often investing, staying out of debt, and then just becoming wealthy over time. Canceling subscriptions. So I don't know what Netflix is. We we canceled our Netflix, I think, oh, last year, which is nice. crazy. People, so people are like defriending me because they tell them <laughs> I, I cancel Netflix. I just I have kids too, so I don't. I just don't have time. But you're, if you're just like twenty bucks a month, twelve months out of the year, it's two hundred forty bucks a year. Yeah. Hey, guess what? In Seven point two years. Yeah. That two hundred forty bucks is almost five hundred bucks. Yeah. Well, plus the other six years of that you didn't pay for in that time. Well, we, plus, that's, yeah. yeah, that's just that it's, one year. It's like this another cumulative snowballing effect that just gets to be huge. It's, it's just crazy. So, tapering down. I know we've been in here for a little while, and I mean, this is a really fun conversation. Uh, what's the best and worst financial decision you've ever made? Oh my gosh, I have so many. I'll start with the worst ones. I was thinking <laughs> about this on the drive up here. Um, if you sort them by number amount, the ones I made more recently were uh, bigger, uh, just because I've had bigger numbers to play with. Um, there was a time when I was running my company where I had ads on my website, which was getting pretty good traffic. And Google mentioned, emailed and said, oh, we've got these new better ads. And so I kind of was like, great. I put on the new better ads. And I basically didn't look at it for six months, which was bad because I had other stuff to do. And then I looked at it and we basically underperformed. You know, We used to be making like, you know, $100,000 a year. And then we started making $50,000 a year. And so over six months, that basically cost me $25,000. I know this is kind of like a business answer, not a personal finance answer, but by the time, and I was making $36,000 a year. So like I basically like cost myself almost a year's salary salary, by like not keeping an eye on these numbers. And, um, And one of my, you know, I actually heard this from Bob Parsons, who's the founder of GoDaddy. And he says, numbers that are watched improve. And I wasn't watching those numbers and they fell apart. Um, and so that was definitely a mis- mistake. Um, a bigger mistake I made more recently was um, I bought a bunch of stock of the company that I was working for, the company that acquired my startup, um, and then it doubled in value. 
um, and I sold 80% of it because I, and I was basically, I think this time I'm guilty of thinking short term. I was like, oh, I doubled my money. It, was, it took about a year or two to double my money. Um, now, like four years later, that, that stock is now 10x where it was. And so that cost me m- several millions of dollars. Like, you know, if I would probably be here in a net worth of six or seven million dollars instead of four million dollars if I hadn't sold all that stock. But, you know, I was making, you know, if it had gone to zero after that, I would have called myself a genius. You know, you never can tell. But when you ask what are the biggest dollar amounts, <laughs> that one, that one hurts to do the math on these days. And just talking about kind of going back to folks that, are listening to this podcast i think again um and being just newly debt free and not wanting to take on a mortgage one thing i've noticed is just the ability to take risks the ability to be more creative having less pressure i certainly think that this is one of the things that has allowed you to be able to create what you've created on instagram and like just a sixty thousand person following that's pretty that's pretty notable as people continue to live their lives and think about how they spend money you know what's a a, a piece of advice that you have for them high level like as they're driving and listening to this you know what's one way that they can just make the change is it paying down the debt is it, what, like what is it is it making some friends is it following <laughs> some new youtube is it like reading certain things like what are some things a, a journey that you can describe for people to start learning and understanding this new way of thinking yeah for sure learning is a big part of it i mean whether it's you know if you read five books on personal finance and investing you will realize they all say the same thing and you'll basically know everything there is to, to know um i'd say in terms of actionable tips the one thing that i would always recommend is to automate um you know i hate the word budget budget's just like such a bad it's like a diet it's like you stick to it for two weeks and then it just falls apart and then you're yeah. worse than when you started it's just like a bad word and and it has bad connotations and it, it just invokes ideas of limiting and guessing how much you're going to spend on groceries and then feeling bad about yourself when you go over um I, I think and also i actually happen to budget um i actually use a budgeting app to so i like know every dollar that goes in and out of my accounts but i also know that i'm extremely weird is it and that mint I don't use Mint. I use a, a budget app budget? called Wineab. Yeah, you, yeah, you need yeah, a yeah. budget. Um, I like that one because it's a little bit more proactive and it's a little bit more reactive. But even even what I do, I think I have to recognize the reality of the world that 90% of people aren't going to ever do this. So what I would do is automate. And so when I say automate, I mean go into your bank account, your checking account, your investment accounts, your debt accounts, and set it up so like the day you get paid, Big chunks are going towards debt. If you're in the debt phase, big chunks are going towards saving. Big chunks are going towards investing. Set up with a plan so that the first thing that happens when you get paid is these big things happen that that are going to like move your financial future forward. And then, so if you you know if you have your investing taken care of, you have your debt taken care of, you have your like shorter midterm savings taken care of, then for your um, for everything that's left, you can kind of just spend it. And I think people think in this very like cash centric space so they look in their checking account they see how much money they have and if you've automated away all the important stuff and then what's left you can basically spend and that's like kind of like a very simplistic budget where you only have one budget item, which is like whatever's left you know you can automate your bills and stuff too and then whatever whatever's left you can just spend without um basically feeling bad and knowing that you're you've done the important things first by investing early and often and paying down your debt I'm going to have to share the link of the the CEO of YNAB. He came onto a, a podcast. I forgot the name of the podcast, but I'll put it in the show notes. And he, he just talks about making buckets. So if you have a Christmas account, Christmas expenses, gifts, or whatever, you make monthly contributions to that bucket ahead of time so that all your money has a job. Yeah. 
And that's like a very interesting way to, to do. That's what me and my wife are doing for budgeting. Yeah, we could do another hour on YNAB, I think, because I <laughs> like I love it. I love having every dollar having a job. I like the buckets, like the categories, so I know you know it, it just adds awareness to your spending. And so, if if you're a money nerd and you think it might be valuable, I would go check it out if you're listening, because um, it, it's a type of awareness that when you just have one big checking account and all the money just sitting there, you don't really know what's earmarked for. Like some of it has to go towards rent, some of it has to go towards bills. You're saving some of it. You don't really know. But with, with YNAB, you just basically break it in all these different buckets. And then if one of your buckets is empty, it doesn't mean that you have failed or you can't spend from that bucket. It just means you need to go take it from a different bucket. And so now it's like an awareness. It's like a visibility into your spending and into your habits that you didn't have when it's just all in one gigantic pile. What's the simplest way that you can... When, so one thing we didn't we kind of glossed over i didn't i didn't get deeper on was where you're putting the money um you talk a lot about low index funds what's the and i mean you could probably talk for five hours on where to allocate and different funds and mutual funds and etfs these things what's like the easiest thing for people to do who aren't aren't billionaires so my favorite thing is what's called a target date index fund um I love it because the more I learn about this, the more I do it and the more I coach it and the more I've lived it, the more I believe that simplicity has a very real positive financial value. And everyone is in this like get rich quick mindset, beat the market mindset, you know, pick a stock mindset. Bitcoin. But, yeah, Bitcoin <laughs> or Forex or CBD you know, companies, yeah. Beyond Meat or Tesla or whatever. And because you hear stories about someone who knows a guy who hit it big or whatever. But the reality is, if you just get all the nonsense out of your life and prevent human mistakes, you're much more likely to be more wealthy over time. And so a target date index fund is basically just a basket of index funds, a US index fund, an international index fund, and a bond index fund that are automatically set for you, automatically rebalance and automatically reallocate over years as you age. And all you do is you put your money into this one fund. And this is all over my Instagram account. If you look at it, there's ticker symbols and everything. And so if you just put your money into a targeted index fund and focus on what's actually important, which is putting more money in, not getting tricky about what you're picking, just pick something simple and put more money in, that's how you can get more wealthy. So I love that with all my new investing. I just throw into a targeted index fund, let it sit for decades, don't sell anything until you retire. Just let it grow. Ignore the market. Ignore the news. That's how you maximize your wealth. What is your top favorite Instagram account if you have one? Oh, man. I'm like really bad at Instagram despite uh, um, being... I'm afraid I'm afraid and, to say one because I have a lot of like uh, debt-free community friends and in- investing friends. Yeah. I don't know. Check, go, go to my Instagram page and click on who I follow. And I think that's like a better <laughs> list. Cause I want to, I want to say I want to offend the people I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about your favorite finance book? If you had one that you could uh, refer out. The one that I most often recommend is a really funny one. It's called a beginner's guide to investing in Amazon. It's like $3 on Kindle. It's a hundred pages exactly. And it's basically like the cliff notes to every classic book on investing. And I like it because it just, it literally is like all these books on investing say the same thing. They reference like all the famous classics on investing and it's just, it's a hundred pages. And so it's not this like super PhD level theoretical thing. It's just like, Nope, this walks you through A to Z. Um, if I did less two, I would probably say anything by Jack Bogle, who is the founder of Vanguard. He's like kind of my investing hero. He's the basic 
the inventor or the founder of the idea of index funds. And he just seems to be like, he actually recently passed away uh, at the beginning of this year, I think. But he was like the true altruistic voice in championing the individual investor. Um, and before him, I just feel like it was mostly financial services companies just like taking people advantage of people who didn't know how to enter this very complex world of investing and jack bogle is like no it's simple just buy all the stocks at a very low fee and forget about the rest um and so he has a great book called the little book of common sense investing which just beats into your brain over and over and over um why you should buy and hold low fee index funds Uh, it reminds me of a a book called a simple plan to wealth jl collins that book has helped me decide what to do with all of our investments, which essentially we're putting when, when we can in an S&P yeah. target date fund. VT Sachs. V, VT Sachs. Yeah. I think for us, we do Fidelity. So it's yeah, uh, nice. FSCACs. Yeah. Everything is going Love in it. FSCACs. It's nice. you know 2,000 odd securities or whatever. Yeah. If something happens, if there's war on American soil, maybe... Uh, you know, we have bigger issues to worry about, and that the funds. I, gonna... I mean, I actually do like to diversify internationally too. So I would do like yeah. a three fund portfolio: U.S. international and maybe bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, for that reason, which I don't want to be 100 percent central in one specific country, but the U.S. is such a global economic superpower with its yeah. its businesses so deeply in every other country that um, very wise people have said that you are globally diversified if you're all in the microsoft's the coca-colas they all have do business and right. yeah jl collins he essentially says a lot of things same things that you preach his three i think sticking points his part of his mantra is spend less than you make invest the surplus and i think his is he save 50 percent of what, what you actually earn which is quite a bit 50 yeah. percent saves rate and finally just avoid debt so it's exactly what what you're kind of preaching there um and then okay lastly what's next for you man uh, I really want to grow Personal Finance Club. Um, right now, you know, we talk a lot about Instagram, but I want it to be like an altruistic source of information that's unbiased with no, you know, ulterior motives for people to go to when they want to know questions about personal finance and investing. And I think that, you know, I kind of think of it as like almost like a Wikipedia of personal finance because I really like what Jimmy Whale did with Wikipedia. And he's just like, nope, we're not taking money from corporations because as soon as you do, the whole thing is has this like taint of bias and i feel like there isn't that in the investing space right now and so i kind of want to have and i started instagram just because that's where young people are i want to get the message out as fast as possible but yeah when i want to grow my youtube channel start a podcast this year start the make the website better the whole thing so yeah i'm just going to really grow personal finance club I can't wait. That's really yeah. cool. That's really cool. Well, Jeremy, this has been a, a really fun, fun time. Thanks. Thanks. For coming Are on the you going to ask me the question about uh, seven days on unlimited resources? You know what? Let's let's <laughs> let's do it. I spent the whole drive up here trying to think of a good answer I, to that. I figured, you know, I was thinking about that, and I'm like, you know, what? he's going to talk about your mission and what you're up to now. So, okay, the question, the question: If you have seven days and unlimited resources, what this, would be the problem that you would solve? This is a really hard question because. And your former guests, I, I hate to pick a bone, but none of their none of it would work in seven days. Like one guy said, education. I was like you can't fix education in seven days. Like you'd still be picking out furniture for your boardroom when you're going to have a meeting to talk about you know uh, what classes you want to hold by the time the seven days are up. Um, so this is what I do. But unlimited <laughs> is a big number. Yeah, unlimited is a lot. So this is what I do. I would march. I would first thing first day. I would go Google the best legal team in the United States. Like go hire them for the week. Uh, you know, pay them unlimited amount of money because I have unlimited resources. Then we'd go to CVS headquarters. We'd, uh, you know, 
threaten them with lawsuits or whatever. And we'd go march up to the CEO office and basically buy a controlling stake in CVS for whatever cost. And then we would make those stupid CVS receipts shorter because they're too <laughs> damn long and you don't need a six foot CVS receipt when you need to pack a gum. And I think I could get that done in seven days with unlimited resources. So it's actionable. It's realistic. And maybe not that all that helpful. I love it. And I love the fact that you listen to my podcast. <laughs> that I, is I, so awesome. <laughs> I know the question. I was, I was you're going to try to get away with not asking me. And I was like, no, I've done my homework. How do folks get a hold of you? Yeah. Instagram is where most of the magic happens at Personal Finance Club, www.personalfinanceclub.com. I've got a YouTube, Personal Finance Club. Um, I'm pretty easy dude to find online. All right. Well, I'll put all that information in the show notes and we will talk to you soon, Jeremy. Thank you, Derek. It's been a pleasure. This is super fun. All right, man. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.